0: This is a podcast about our lived experience, which unfortunately includes infant death and subsequent mental health struggles. Please take good care of yourself and only listen if this content feels safe for you right now. We'll still be here when you're ready. Hi, I'm Judith. And I'm Melina. We are internet friends turned real life friends who both experienced the tragic loss of our sons to sudden infant death syndrome in winter of 2021.
1: In the year after Aiden died, my husband and I both became unemployed, my parents divorced, and we had to move
0: five times for various reasons. And as for me, just a few weeks before my son Quinn died, my then-husband had come out to me as a transgender woman and we're subsequently divorcing. It's been a lot. (laughs) It's been a lot.
1: (laughs) But as long as we're living, we will love our sons deeply and work to make sure that we live a life that makes them proud. Welcome to As Long As I'm Living podcast. We're so glad you're here.
2: Hi, Judith. So, yeah. Judith, this is Carol. Carol, this Hi is Carol. Judith. It's so nice to meet you, Judith. I'm it's so nice sorry you. that you're part of this shitty, shitty, shitty ass club.
1: I am too. I wish I wish I wasn't. Yeah, it's the
2: worst. It's Wouldn't a,
1: be great?
2: Maybe the most it's the most terrible reason to know someone. It is. But
1: it's such a pleasure to meet you because I've heard so many wonderful things about you and I'm really excited to learn more.
2: I mean, thank goodness, goodness. we all know each other, right?
0: I know. know.
2: Or else it would really be a lonely, lonely road.
0: That's why I made up empty arms. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So on that note, (laughs) hi, everybody. Welcome to As Long As I'm Living. We have a very special guest for you today. This is our first non-spouse guest. Um, So we've interviewed my ex, Kaylee, who you guys know. We've interviewed Judith's husband, but this is our first non-spouse guest. And I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Um, Carol, why don't you introduce yourself?
2: So I'm Carol McMurrick, and I'm the founder and director of Empty Arms Bereavement Support. And I am the mom of Charlotte Amelia. Charlotte was my first daughter, who was born in May of 2003 and died during labor from oxygen deprivation. And my experience with Charlotte made me feel very driven to create community and understanding and increase awareness around pregnancy and infant loss everywhere. Thank you.
0: We are so happy to have you. So first, I'm going to have you start off by telling us a little bit about Empty Arms, um, why you founded it, and you know the services you provide.
2: So, Empty Arms I wanted to create a resource that would network people to each other so that people would actually have humans that they could talk to and connect with and and be face to face with. And I also wanted a network where people hopefully would have to do as little work as possible to actually access the resource. So, Um, You know, if in the hospital systems that we work in, we ask providers, like, please have us reach out to the person. Don't give the person our card. Mm -hmm. Have the person give you their information and give it to us. So we call them and say, we're so sorry that this happened. Like, how can we be there for you? So there's three things that Empty Arms does. Um, Fifteen years ago, things were in the works for just one support group. And it was obviously a face-to-face support group because there's no, um, video conferencing 15 years ago. And it was just for people in Western Mass. And so it was just one group. And now uh, aided by just the community, because everything that we've created is totally the origin of everything is just like us feeling out, like, what is it that people need and how can we make that happen? Um, We have sort of three components. One is the component where we're visiting people actually in the hospital in Mm -hmm. all up the Connecticut River Valley. So we we serve all of the hospitals um, kind of up like the Connecticut River corridor. And and so that means when someone's baby dies in the hospital, we are able to go in and meet them like immediately and help them get those things that they need and it's not quite as dependent on whether or not they have a good nurse because they have somebody else who's holding the staff accountable to make sure that those things happen and we can get more and better stuff for them and we know things like you know like when I am am working with a baby and I have the baby wrapped in one blanket and then I switch out the blanket because I, you know, for whatever reason, I'm, like, putting that blanket in a bl- bag to go home with the parents. Because I know that, like, every single thing that touches that baby needs to go home. And, yeah. you know, I'm just trying to give them, like, as much as they possibly ha- can to, like, that's tangible. And, um, and so that's one component. That's, like, our in-the-hospital component. And then our in-the-community component is following those people that we serve in the hospital. And then doing outreach to anywhere we can potentially come in contact with people and, and running these groups, which are, were in our office, but are now on Zoom. And, um, we run like nine groups a month. And I, I, I have nine right now, but like, I have like three that I want to like open in the next two months. So it's like, there feels like limitless p- potential for all of the different categories of things that people want to just lean into. Um, so running these groups, which is the are, there are these like, very structured but yet very open trauma-informed safe environments where people just get to be together with this common thread and this like deep reverence for the fact that people's stories are profoundly different but there are so many common threads of socially what it is like to be a parent without a baby in this culture and so many common threads to the things that people struggle with in just figuring out how to live with this grief um and that's been you know those are very very powerful and really strong relationships come out of that um certainly also in the community support aspect of things I do a lot of like just one-to-one introductions for people like oh I just you know somebody knew I just met her in the hospital last week and like there's these pieces of her story that remind me of these other people that I know that kind of live near her and so I'm going to do that intro and like get them connected and You know, I love that piece of just, like, getting people to know each other. And then the last piece is education, which is kind of, I don't want to say it's, like, my favorite part because I actually love, of course, just, like, chilling with the parents. It's been so incredible for me to build this network, which is so self-serving because I have a network of friends now, too. Um, But the nurses and doctors, uh, you know, and I really think the nurses – you know, for bedside care are are the most important because they have the most face time with patients. Um, They have little to no training in how to deal with this. They have little to no training in how to manage people in like what kinds of things are important. They have little to no training in like, you know, what is possible. And they're learning it on the fly. They're learning it from one another, you know, if at all. And so that means that if you learn it from somebody who's doesn't really know what they're doing, then you're learning the wrong things. And I don't want them learning it from each other. I want them learning it from us. Mm -hmm. I want them learning it from us who can say like, these are the four things that happened in my interaction with the healthcare system. And like, you know, we're interacting with the healthcare system in all different ways. Like you guys were interacting with like paramedics and emergency room staff. And like, what were the ways in which, There may have been people who interacted with you in those moments who affected you in a way that somehow buoyed you in a time of like total and utter chaos and trauma. And where are there places where you're just like, did you really have to pour salt on that wound in that moment? Like, could you not have phrased that differently or created space for me? Um, You know where it was denied and a lot of the things that we try to teach people to do are not complicated. They don't cost money. They don't take time. They're just not things that are intuitive to people because their discomfort with that babies dying is so enormous Um, and I feel like that work of getting in there and teaching professionals ahead of time just feels so important to me because I know that it's going to have an impact down the road because people their reaction when a baby dies is terror right when they hear that that baby is coming in they are terrified and so if they have a little bullet point list in the back of their brain that they learned in a class one time they're pulling that list up and they're going to try to remember everything that was on it like this is not wasted time in trying to teach people. They want the information. So I love being able to provide that. Yeah.
0: So Carol is one of the first people that I talked to after Quinn died. I think I sent you an email and I was like, I, my son died. Mm -hmm. I, what do I do? I was like, I literally
2: think you sent, I think you sent me an email two days after he died. Yes.
0: It was right then. And that, and Judith, Judith is the same. She's like, we were both like doing all, taking care of all this logistical stuff. We were like, we need to find some groups. We need to find like a study, like all this stuff. But yeah, I emailed you and I was like, what do I do? (laughs) You know? And I think... So I think I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about like, you know, as you you are like the front lines for people who have just lost their baby. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about like support people in general, not like healthcare providers. Like how can they support people in those really, really early days when literally they they are not even really alive? They're not even there. How can They're they how can there. family and friends support people in those really early days?
2: So I think that there are a couple of things that are like in the forefront of my mind when I think about that. I think the first thing that everybody has to really step back from is any interactions that try to guide the way that the person is like processing or Relating to their grief process and their relationship with that baby Um, The only person who can be in charge of that is the person experiencing it. So um, There is a huge range of ways that people will react to the death of their baby and there is a huge range of needs that people will have afterwards and I could say that like probably 99.9% of those things are totally normal So, you know, when you see your person catatonic on the couch and they don't want to answer your, you know, questions about whether they want to eat or not, you can just let them be catatonic on the couch. And you can say to them, like, I'm here for you and I'm just going to let you be and I'm going to check in with you, you know, every hour and make sure that there isn't a way that I can be helping you. But I see it. I see that this is what you need right now.
1: I feel like the food thing, the most irritating thing in the world. Like I get angry even thinking about it now. People were so obsessed with feeding me. That's and right. Everyone was just obsessed with feeding me. Bring, they kept like telling me to take more bites
2: of soup. And I was like, I don't want to. could probably all go with for like two weeks without actually eating much and be fine. So I think that, yeah, like letting people just be. And it's scary. It's so scary to see the person that you love disappear. And essentially, for almost everybody, the people that really care about you are going to feel like you are gone because you are gone. Like the part of you as a person before this baby died is gone for now. And a new version of you is going to reemerge and there are going to be a lot of parts that are the same and there are going to be a lot of parts that are different. And then the second thing that I think is so important is when you want to help, you have to list the options. You can't just say that you're there. You have to give the menu. You have to say, these are the things I could do for you right now. Or I would like to do this. Is that okay? I would like to make you dinner. Would you like the dinner to be delivered at five o'clock or in the morning? Would you like the dinner to be put directly into your freezer or would you like me to bring you a dinner that you can eat today. Don't say, what can I do? Because nobody knows what they want somebody to do. Say, I'm going to go to the store for you. I'm going to buy you salad, milk, and cheese. What else will should, should I add to that list? Right? Not like, what do you want me to get for you? But like, I am at the store. I am buying you things. Right. So being like, almost like, and even though I know that you just said, like people were forcing you to eat soup and that was annoying. Like, I think that that, that on the other hand, like there are places where you do kind of just have to be like, I'm helping, but you have to also make sure that you offer the option for people to receive the help in a way that is not intrusive.
1: I think one thing that would be helpful for me
2: is that people would help the people around me.
1: Like, yeah, they like I, the people around me, like my mom or whoever the closest people, my husband they needed help to help them, would be helping me to feed them, is feeding me. That's to feed right, them is caring for me, and they are better equipped to tell you, like, my mom is better equipped to tell you what she could benefit from than I am right now. So, it would like, I would say, one thing that I think would be helpful is, like, say, I'm gonna drop off food for your entire family, because I know that family at time, and I'll coordinate with your mom. Don't even ask me. Don't even, like, if I'm like, not even, like, I'm not even useful.
2: Two people brought food, and they um, didn't knock on the door, and then they just called and said, I left food on your porch. Yes. Oh, right? Yes. So then it wasn't like I have to have this interaction with someone. And I think yeah. that you should do that if you're going, you know, if you're doing the shopping, say, I'm going to pick some things up for you, but I'm going to leave them outside. Like, certainly if you want a visit, I would love, I would be happy to come in and keep you company. But, you know, I'm guessing that right now it would be more helpful for me to just leave it. So like respecting that space, but then also like, I think that, that, I've heard from a lot of parents and I know that this was true for me, especially for people, you know, when your baby dies and never comes home, nobody's, nobody knows your baby. And so I had some people, you know, I have a friend who's a midwife who said to me like, when you're ready, I would love to sit down with you and hear Charlotte's whole birth story. And I remember thinking like, that's the best thing anyone has said to me since the day she was born is like they wanted to know about her. And they wanted to like find out more about her so that they could, they could know her like I knew her.
0: I, I've talked about this in support groups and I, I think I've even talked about this on the podcast, but it, it is so painful for me that every story about my child is about a dead baby. Mm-hmm. Like he's also just my baby. And so when yeah. I get to talk about him as my baby, it is so special to me because it's so unusual, you know?
2: Yeah, Totally. I totally agree. Like creating those opportunities. And I think that, you know, when I talk to, to healthcare care providers, and this also is true for parents and support people, there are a lot of ways in which you can ask parents questions that opens a door where they're either allowed to walk through it or they can choose not to. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if you say this, you know, if I were to say to you, like, Alina, did Quinn look like you? like you could just answer yes, or you could be like, oh my God, he was so beautiful. Like he had big blue eyes just like me. And, you know, like you could go on for 15 minutes if that is the invitation that you need to just talk about what Quinn looks like. But it's not necessarily like, I think people are afraid to ask any question because they have that like, they like have this like delusional notion that like, you know, we've like, we're like no longer thinking about the kid. And if they say their name, we're going to suddenly be like, oh my God, my baby died and like burst into (laughs) hysterical tears. Um, Right. They don't realize that this is just like part of our DNA now. And like, there's no way that you could possibly like surprise us with the knowledge, (laughs) Um, you know, and that, that in, in more ways than one, any question is a welcome question yeah, because it it like acknowledges and validates our living reality as parents of a baby that's not living. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I am just wondering if there are some common threads you've heard over the years that you've done all of this work. Are there common threads that it feels like, like, this is all stuff that parents feel when their baby dies? Like what are the common threads? Because I'm guessing our listeners, like they've heard me and Judith talk about our stuff, but those are just two individual people's experience.
2: Yeah. It's actually like the longer time goes by, the more like fascinating it is for me to work with people, especially because you can imagine that like the way in which I'm talking to people is not typical conversational style in the beginning because it's like I'm listening I'm not inserting myself into their conversation and so um I find myself just like fascinated by how easy it is for me to know exactly what someone's about to say (laughs) because they start to say something and I'm like oh this is the thing that you're about to launch into I know exactly what you're going to say and so um and so you know, I like if I'm thinking like in chronological order, like when people talk about the experience of like their baby dying um, or finding out that their baby like did die or will die, like people talk about feeling like I'm watching myself in a movie. I felt like I was out of my body. Like I felt like my, my head was full of fog, like the ways in which people describe their relationship to themselves, like in that moment of like dissociation from the life that you thought you were going to have. And then all of a sudden, like, something else is starting to happen that you have no control over. Like that experience, I find people describe like with remarkable consistency. And then um, there are a lot of really consistent ways in which people um, struggle with relationships. So, um, you know, most people come to me, or to support groups, when they like the first time that they find out that somebody who's close to them is having a baby where you have somebody tell you something that is supposed to be good news and you know intellectually that like it's supposed to be happy news and that you should be happy for them and all you feel is like gutted Rage. and devastated and raged, <laughs> yeah. right yeah. and you're like oh my god i'm a terrible person like my sister's having a baby and now I hate her and, <laughs> and you haven't experienced it enough to understand that like you don't actually hate your sister like it has nothing to do with your sister has nothing to do with her baby and has everything to do with the fact that like you are heartbroken and miss your baby and want your baby back again right and so you know that conversation is so hard um conversations with people about going back to work and like what they're worried about going back to work. And, you know, a lot of people will call me kind of at, at, or talk about this in group, you know, like I'm starting to go out more and like, I am struggling with a question, like how many children do you have? Like, how do you answer that question? And so like, that's a script that goes over and over and over and over again. And like, of course the answer is like, for most people it depends who you're talking to and it depends what kind of a day you're having and it depends who you are and how like Mm -hmm. private versus public you feel like how much like your your scales of anxiety versus like the anxiety of people not knowing you're a mother versus the anxiety of facing people's discomfort like everybody has their own little scale where like you know in one moment you're like I don't even care. I just want everyone to know about him. And in the other moment, you're like, I can't deal with the look on your face. If I tell you that I have this kid and I'm never even going to see you again anyway. So forget it. I'm just going to just not say anything and keep walking. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that this happens. And just like everybody benefits so much from, you know, we don't have like a mirror for ourselves of like, you know, in with so much of, of life and you two have both parented a newborn and you know what this is like when you have a newborn baby and like you don't know what to do when you bring your newborn baby home but like you have books to read and you've like seen people parent on television and like maybe you've seen your friend parent and you can go to a baby group and like look around and you just kind of you're like picking little like tidbits up about like you know here's what you might do when your baby cries a lot
0: Mm-hmm. And you, you have you have so many examples that you can be like, oh, that person did this, that doesn't look good for me for my baby, but that other person did that, and that's great. But then when the baby dies, you are like, who do I look at?
2: Right, you've got nothing, and so like I think that that to me that's what's like so. I mean, even one person is valuable, but to me that's the thing that is like so rich about the support group is that you get people. You know, somebody might come in. Of course, this is like another thing. Like, what do I do with the baby stuff? and you know i don't know what to do with my baby's things and
0: we have an episode about that listeners if you're curious <laughs>
2: right one person in the circle is going to say you know oh like my my nursery is my shrine and like everything is perfect and it's totally intact and i love going in there and touching all of the things and another person's going to say like everything was like It still had the tags on. I like literally packed it all in the car the next day and took it back to Target and like was totally happy to like get rid of it. I yelled at the salesperson, was like my fucking baby died. Give me all my money back. They like turned pale white, like started throwing dollars at me to get me out of their store, you know? And so you get these like stories and these role models that basically I think the sum total of, of, of like what I hope people take away is like Oh, I get to do whatever the hell I want. Like, whatever the thing is that, like, I need to do to make it through the next five minutes, like, that is a thing that I'm supposed to be doing right now.
0: You know, we're only two people, and and I think if, if neither Judith or I, we kind of grieve similarly, and so I think it'll be helpful for people to hear, like, this is, because I'm sure they'll recognize themselves in what you just talked about, and... You know, they're going to be like, oh, that's like me.
2: <laughs> it's crazy, like the similarities and also like the, the range of like the ways in which people survive. And it really is. It's just it's survival. And it's it's it really, you know, it's like a restart that you didn't ask for. And so you're just so
0: discombobulated. I know it is. It, it's it's a wild time. I remember. Like, I don't remember at all the first support group I went to. I remember what I was wearing, but I don't remember any of it because I was just like, you know, completely beside myself. But I remember leaving that group. I do remember distinctly just feeling so grateful to have known Quinn. Mm -hmm. And I think there was something about hearing everybody else's stories and hearing them talk about the love they had for their babies, like it just gave me this, like, I was just so reminded of my overwhelming love for him. Like, I felt like I had been so caught up in the grief of him not being there and the sadness and everything. Like, it was nice to, and I still feel that way when I go to group. I'm just like, it's so nice. And I feel that way recording this podcast. It's so nice to talk about him and and have permission, give myself permission to, like, spend time, really dedicated time thinking about him and talking about him. It's so wonderful. That
2: is totally the thing that I just like cherish so much about our organization and not just, I mean, I shouldn't even say organization, it's community. It's like all of the people because it gives everybody, like everyone who comes in, they are, they're there because they're the parent of that baby. And it's the only place for many people where they're, seen like first and foremost as the parent of that child
0: right and and never forget interestingly not as the parent of that dead child as the parent of that child which is you would think that wouldn't be true but it really feels like you're just the parent of a child and all these people happen to have dead children but they're just parents of children
2: and you have something in right common. exactly and like I don't ever think like it's like borderline like preposterous to me to imagine that like in other places out in the world, like these people that come in with these like very complex, complicated, deep life-altering relationships with these babies mm-hmm. are not considered parents.
0: Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. It's
2: just weird. Like it's yeah. very much shifts your identity. Absolutely does.
0: Um, I I want to talk to you about because I've been to many different support groups. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about. Empty arms is empty arm. The so the philosophy of the empty arms support groups because I feel like it's different than the other ones I've been to, in that like the the space is uh, well I'll let you talk about it but it just it has a different vibe. I want to know what the vibe is. Like I'm curious. It feels it feels like you can say anything. Mm-hmm. It feels like. I have never once in that group felt as though anybody was judging anybody else for having a different experience. Mm-hmm. It's also very open-ended. I did a support group that was six weeks long and each week had a topic and, mm-hmm. you know, the the facilitator was teaching us about a topic and, and it was yeah. helpful, but it was also not, it didn't feel like a support group. It felt like a yes. grief education class. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, it's, it's also been so nice that the facilitator is a bereaved mom herself. Yes. Um, And that you're so much further along in the journey. Like it, it feels, I think one of the things I like about it is that it's not just newly bereaved parents or people at my exact stage of the grief process. Like it feels good to me to go to the support group and be able to help people who are freshly bereaved. And for me to see people who are three years out and see how they're doing, you know, now that I'm one year out. That feels so nice that it's a huge community over the course of whatever phase they're at. I love that about it. Um, So what, like, tell me about your philosophy and how you run the support groups, because it's different than the other ones I've been in.
2: You just, like, basically named the philosophy. (laughs) I love it. So the first thing is, is it is pure support. It's pure facilitated. And that's, like, a mandatory, Mm -hmm. like, that's the most mandatory part of our facilitator profiles for all our groups, is that they're all peer facilitated because it's that lens authenticity that is impossible to find. Yes. And I think all of us have had experiences where we have been with professionals who we trust and then lost that trust because we realized like they don't actually know what mm-hmm. this really feels like. Mm-hmm. And I think having facilitators who do know what it really feels like really changes the tone of the group. And part of the reason why that is, is because your goals are different. Mm -hmm. So your facilitator of your six-week group who had the little menu of six topics to get through (laughs) and was teaching you about grief, I mean, that's great. That's a great, that's a a style of group that has a specific purpose and function. Definitely has a role and can be really, really helpful and informative. But the role that it serves is like a purpose-driven goal it's Mm -hmm. like we are going to help people to understand the process that they're going through in in six sessions and with the goal being that they will understand you know i've got these teaching points that i want to get through yeah that is not the way that our groups work our groups actually operate on with the underlying goal of basically like brutal honesty breeds brutal honesty
0: yeah.
2: and the idea that like we have the opportunity to witness each other mm-hmm. like in our raw state yeah and there is nothing that is more empowering to each individual person than being able to like be their own vulnerable raw emotional traumatized self in the presence of other people Mm -hmm. and be witnessed and then in turn be able to witness the same thing of other people and and that loops me back also to the peer facilitator model because the model that we use for facilitation also requires that the facilitators like begin with their own emotional content and so like one of the things that you'll know that you know is that like our circles always begin with the facilitators sharing their own story and sharing some of their own emotional content. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as someone like my story is 18 years old. And so, I will often say, you know, I remember feeling this way and over time it has shifted to this because I am also trying to serve as that role model, right? Mm -hmm. So my job is to both share relatable content that's going to make Alina say like, oh my God, she does get this. She does know what it feels like to like lay on the couch for nine days in a row and never eat because Mm -hmm. she's too sad to eat. Yeah. Oh, but she doesn't feel like that. She never lays on the couch anymore. That's good. (laughs) Like, it's good to know that somehow you can get from point A to point B. And I can also honestly say, which I think lends credibility to our support groups, like, I don't even freaking know how I got from there to here. (laughs) Like, I just got out of bed every day and, like, put on my socks and kept going. And somehow things shifted. So, what I did is exactly what you're doing right Mm -hmm. now. I just showed up for myself every day and did the best that I could.
0: It's almost like you were saying those other groups are purpose-driven and this is a process-driven group. It's It's
2: totally process-driven. And I like to think that there's a way, and it's not explicit. I mean, we do say it explicitly, I guess, in some ways. But like, there is no human on Earth that knows what you need more than you. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes groups... And, th- and this can happen in therapy too, groups that are, you know, professionally facilitated by somebody who's like a social worker or a psychologist who's not a bereaved parent, like there can be a sense that like, you know more about this process than I do and you're guiding me. Mm-hmm. And our philosophy is like, you are guiding you. Like we're all teaching each other in this circle and you're your guide. And we really hope that you'll learn things from this circle that will help you to guide you better. But, like, nobody's ever going to guide you for you. And, like, when it comes right down to it, like, we are the only people who can rescue ourselves. There's no one who does this work for us ever, no matter what. No matter what our support structure is, no matter who we have on our team, we do this for ourselves. We are the only people that can, like, heal ourselves over time. Right? And I think that, like, that's scary. but Empowering. it's empowering and empowering when you're able to kind of come to understand that in the context of a community of people who are all in their own stages of the same struggle. Right. That's right. Yeah. Cause you have all these different role models. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. So mm-hmm. what's next for empty arms? Oh, wow. The list is, the list is really long.
2: Um, so, Right now, I think that, so one thing I would like to just precede what I'm about to say with is that empty arms is like such a work in progress. Like there is nothing about empty arms that feels at all organized, put together, (laughs) finished. It's constantly changing and shifting and growing because, you know, our community isn't, you know, that like six week session that you went to means that people are moving in and out of that, whatever that was, but like people aren't, there's a lot of people that move in and don't leave. Mm -hmm. And that's great. That's the goal, right? The goal is that like, you know, in five years, when somebody comes to me and says like, I just lost my four month old to SIDS, I'm like, I'm going to have Alina call you and you're going to call them and you're going to be that person for them. And like, that's what I want to foster is like, for people who really get a lot out of this, like being able to be able to like be that person who like forges the friendship from the other side is like so amazing. So our, so we get bigger, but then as we get bigger, it enables us to be able to like create more subgroups because we have cohorts for those subgroups. So, mm-hmm. you know, for example, when we first started, people that had terminated for medical reasons were just like looped into our regular bereavement group. And there wasn't a group specific to that because we only had at any given time, like maybe one or possibly two people. And like, that's not a group. But then over time we started to get like more and more and more people. And so then it was like, Oh, well we can actually have this just be a group. Mm -hmm. And so, um, certainly we have like a plenty of groups that we want to have on the menu. Um, I would say that probably, um, one of the things that we have needed to do for a long time and we just don't really have enough facilitators and I really want peer facilitators that have had a lot of experience with other bereaved parents because I want them to be able to have that like full spectrum view of like Mm -hmm. what's possible and what's normal and, you know, um, I would love to have a trying to conceive group that's separate from our subsequent choices group so Mm -hmm. that we could really give separate attention to people that are like launching into like thinking about having a baby versus people who are actually like five months pregnant and wanting to know like, what do I say to my doctor at my next appointment? Mm -hmm. Um, Because those are currently like mixed spaces and it's just a challenging it's a challenging balance to strike. I feel like that's the group that I work the hardest in as a facilitator to like try to feel like I'm like meeting everyone's needs and making sure that like the conversation is applicable to all the people in the room. And like, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that like whirl through your head when you're facilitating. You're always like thinking about like everybody at the table and like, is that relevant to them? And like, what question could I ask to like weave this person in? And Mm -hmm. um, I would love to have a separate LGBTQ plus group um, that just, you know, like, gives some like some credit to the fact that like the experience of parenting in a same-sex couple or as a trans person like carries with it like additional challenges and burdens that like a straight couple does not have Mm -hmm. and so I want to be able to have there be a space where we're saying like we honor this like we can we see that this is part of your journey and we want to give you like a place where that's dedicated to speak to it Mm -hmm. um and then A a, a huge piece of where we're going is that in the last two years, we hugely expanded our like geographical region of service for our in-hospital programs and, and looped in Bay State Medical Center, which um, has tripled our caseload of people that we see in the hospital, actually like even more than tripled. Um, So and and that is like a way more diverse community. So we have a lot of a lot of Latinx, a lot of people of color, a lot of people who live in poverty and have other just like socioeconomic challenges. And so we are working pretty hard to try to figure out what are the ways in which we need to to change and expand what we offer so that people are able to use the services that we're offering. Yeah. So, you know, people love to talk about how accessible Zoom is. Yeah, Zoom's accessible if you have great internet. Zoom sucks if you don't have great internet. Yeah. So, like, our Zoom groups are actually, like, really not that accessible for people. It's great that they don't have to leave their house, mm-hmm. but it's not great that their internet sucks and logging in, yeah. you know, is difficult.
0: And this is not the kind of thing you want to do from the library.
2: Absolutely not. <laughs> so we're looking at, like, can we get some in-person groups that are in Springfield that have, you know, that are, like, on the bus line that are in, you know, in-person groups are challenging because we want them in neutral spaces. We don't want an in-person group in a hospital. Mm-hmm. We're not going to run an in-person group in a church. Yeah. Um, but we also don't really have that much money. So, like, <laughs> I can't rent a room for, like, $400 a month yeah. to have one meeting and Like, that's not going to work either. Um, along those same lines, like, we really, I really would like a Spanish language group because... We see a lot of people that don't really speak English and they're not going to come to a support group that's an English-led support group that's like three-quarters populated by white women. Like, that's not appealing. Like, I just, I think that one of the things that I inherently understand, and you do too, because you've been through this, is that, like, the potential to be uncomfortable in an environment like this is so huge. Yes. Especially, like, making the brave decision to try it. For the first time yeah. and so the ways in the, the 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 more ways in which we can create spaces where people feel like they're being like personally invited and the people who are be who are going to be there are going to be like like you yeah. and have things in common with you then that's going to increase the like emotional accessibility of the spaces mm-hmm. so i think that that's kind of like our we're we're like in a position right now where we're going to be designing our strategic plan for the next three years. And I think our role is really looking at equity, like in terms of like, what are we like, who are we serving now? What do people need? How do we deliver those things to people in ways in which they are able to receive that? And so it's going to mean a lot of talking to people that we've met both people who have used what we've offered and people who haven't used what we've offered, just trying to figure out like what can we be better at and who do we need to bring in to be on our team to like deliver those resources
0: more effectively. Yeah. So lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. Well, this has been an amazing conversation.
2: Also, Judith, I just want to say that I feel bad that I just like yammered away at you because of the
0: context of our conversation. And I wasn't like,
2: tell me about your baby. I want to know all about you. Don't even worry about
1: him. (laughs) He's good. I I poor Everyone else has
2: to listen about him. You get a pass. Uh, (laughs) I want to know all about him, though. So next time, next time.
0: I cannot wait to see you. I'll be at the Syrup Stampede on April 3rd. I cannot wait to give you a hug.
2: I can't (laughs) wait either. It's going to be so great. I hope you'll invite all of your family and friends to come to beautiful Northampton. Um,
0: All right. Thank you so much for doing this. You're so welcome. It was so much fun. Okay, great. Um, So listeners, I will link at the Empty Arms website in the show notes if you want to learn more about them. And I don't know, Carol, you have anything else you want to add before we hop off?
2: just that I adore you and <laughs>
0: I love Quinn and
2: I feel so overjoyed that you found a way to just like mother him through this yeah. podcast and yeah. I just <laughs> want to congratulate you uh, on just putting yourself out there for everyone because what a gift you. yeah
0: thank you
2: to all of our wonderful new
1: friends who want to hear from you email us at aslongasimlivingpodcast at gmail.com And follow us on Instagram at As Long As I'm Living Podcast. We'll get back to you as soon as our grooving brains allow. Yay!